Okay, quiet. We're rolling. Seeing her coming out of the darkness like a ghost ship still gets me every time. To see the sad ruin of the great ship sitting here, where she landed at 2.30 in the morning of April 15th, 1912, after her long fall from the world above. <laughs> you were so full of shit, boss. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 205 and our movie this week was 1997's Titanic and joining me to talk about it because somehow he's one of half a dozen people in the country that didn't see this. It's Tom Merrick. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me, man. And yeah. Thanks for giving me an excuse to finally watch this. So... My first question is always kind of what the history is of the movie. And I'm really curious on this one because it was so impossible to escape this movie in 1997. Um, so how is it you managed to go 25 years without seeing it? Yeah, and, I, and I, I should clarify, I didn't go 25 years without seeing any of it. Right. Uh, and watching it yesterday, I realized which parts I had and had not seen. It was basically the only parts I had seen were towards the end. Okay. Uh, everything I had seen was after water was already coming on on the ship. Um, in '97, I was working at Half Price Books in Austin, Texas. I didn't own a car. Okay. I I bicycled around everywhere, so I saw movies whenever friends decided to go see a movie. These are back in the days when you would just decide to go see a movie, show up the theater, see what was playing, and then pick a movie and watch it. Uh, and I honestly don't know why Titanic was never on the list other than we were all snotty 20-somethings and probably were <laughs> like, oh, it's got that looks you know really predictable and dumb and duh, 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 you know everyone's talking about it, so it must be bad. Uh, either that or my friends went to see it on a day where I was going to do something else. That <laughs> I don't really remember that ever happening. But yeah, it was. Uh, I was I was twenty seven and and busy uh, drinking and bicycling would be, <laughs> be my short version of the answer. Well, I mean that's a good enough reason to not have seen it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did see it in the theater. I was um, I was one of those that I didn't. I knew about the movie coming out. And I wasn't super excited about it, even though I knew who James Cameron was and I liked his previous movies. But this one just didn't look like it would interest me, except that yeah, it's I was romance. yeah, I was dragged there by my girlfriend at the time. She wanted to go see ah, it. Okay, I sure. was gonna. I'm not gonna say no. So we went and saw it. And uh, what I found was, all right, it wasn't that bad um, because it had so much of the disaster movie in it as well. Because um, it's kind of like almost two and a half movies in here. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Cause it, it's a period piece. Uh, yeah. You know, like uh, it's a historical piece. It's a period piece. It's a documentary in, in, <laughs> in parts, at least the beginning and the end. Right. Yeah. And that's actually how it got started as a, as a project was Cameron was a huge uh, Titanic fanatic and had produced a documentary or been part of a documentary about Titanic in the early nineties and then wanted 
eventually wanted to make this, and he wanted to make Romeo and Juliet on the set on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. So once he was able to kind of convince both Fox and Paramount Pictures, this had two major studios behind it. Um, they he he managed to make that for this was at the time the most expensive movie ever made uh, when it released two hundred million dollar budget in nineteen ninety seven, which is Yikes. staggering, and they went over budget. Um, but the the idea that there's two major studios involved is pretty crazy to think about at all, um, especially nowadays. I can't imagine like a Fox and Paramount working together. Universal, I think, was at one point they wanted to involve them, um, but they passed on it or something, I think, is what I read. But yeah, this was uh, we'll, we'll kind of I want to talk a little bit about sort of the production of it as well. But as a movie, when you finally sat down and, and watched all three hours of it, what did you think of it just as a movie going experience? Yeah, I uh, I I joked around with people that I was just going to watch it on my phone, uh, <laughs> which which made a few people uh, very angry until they realized I wasn't serious. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I sat down, I, I set aside the time, and the the, the thing that I, I will say for sure is that I thought I would have to break it up because it's a three-hour James Cameron movie. Uh, and having recently experienced another very long James Cameron movie... Uh, <laughs> that I couldn't get up and leave the the theater in the middle of, I thought, you know, I might have to stop midway and then come back and finish it. And I did not. Uh, it held up. I was surprised how a 25-year-old movie uh, just pulled me along, swept me along. Uh, I, I was never bored. I was never... Uh, thinking, you know what? I, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'm, I can't take it anymore. I got to stop and come back later. Uh, I think... I probably checked to see how much time was left once or twice. Sure. But more because I knew how long it was and I wasn't sure if I, you know, I was going to have to go do something else. Like how long was this really going to last? But but it also timed out really well. I It was finishing up right when uh, my wife finished up work and sat down and we were about to, you know, order some spaghetti. So um, it, it for a three hour movie, it was surprisingly easy to watch. Yeah, I I could say rewatching it this time, I did notice that, and I think I think part of it is I forget always that the first twenty minutes of it isn't in the period and is just mm-hmm. them looking at the actual wreck of that, the Titanic. That threw me off because <laughs> I I didn't know that was part of it, and so when I started watching it, I actually did double check. Like I got the right one. I didn't like pick a documentary by accident, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, so like I forget how much of that uh, is part of it. Um, and then when it gets to the period part and the first, so now you're about 20 minutes in or so, and it's at roughly the two or hour and a half, hour, 40 minute mark when things kind of turn into the disaster movie. It becomes uh, the mm-hmm. Poseidon event, adventure, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the romance stuff and kind of the character setup paces out really well better than I remembered it doing. Yeah. Um, and, and it works because now you care about all these people that you then see for the last hour of the movie dealing with this boat sinking. Um, Even the minor characters. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's James Cameron. I will, I will always say is a, uh, kind of a masterful filmmaker in his craft. His stories are all often very simple. And that was sort of my, 
I I had um, somebody watch the first Avatar a couple of months ago, um, and mm-hmm. it was my kind of attempt at re- or it was my my turn to revisit it. I hadn't seen it in a little while, and it is a simple story, but that's fine because he builds these elaborate worlds and he really brings you into what it is. I mean, at its heart, Terminator is a very simple story. Sure. When you when you really look at it, it's just a robot got sent back in time to stop the person that can defeat it in the future. But he does such this, uh, such a great job of of really building a world that you get sucked into, and the and and gives time and care to his characters, so that you worry about what's going on with them. And and time and care that isn't you sitting there saying, well, I guess I have to sit through this to care about this character. Like the mm-hmm. time and care that he gives them is also interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I was struck that this was 1997, but I never had those moments when I've seen other things from the same period in time where I go, ooh, yeah, they wouldn't do that now. Or, ah, they would have changed that. Or, you know, that was a little awkward. They would have handled that more smoothly. Uh, part of that is because it's a period piece. Yeah, but you you know you can you can add winks to the modern in a period piece, and your winks to the modern in 1997 may or may not age well. Uh, I really felt like this didn't have any of those anachronisms in it. No, not really. I mean, the closest you could say some people try to say like, well, Leonardo DiCaprio's haircut seems too modern for for that time period, but really it doesn't. It's just when we see photographs of that era everybody's got you yeah. know brill cream all through their hair and it's all slicked back but if you've got hair like that and it's just dry it's going to look kind of like what his does yeah and so, if you're and if you're in the third class compartment you're right. probably not spending a lot of money on brill cream if you can no. help it no <laughs> especially no. if you're a vagabond like him who's just traipsing all over the world right mm-hmm. exactly um now this movie Obviously, it's going to hinge on your two leads because it is a romance. And so you have to have leads that you care about and that have chemistry. And boy, the chemistry between DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, I think, is just utterly perfect. And they went on, they've gone on to have like a lifelong friendship since this movie. Um, They've talked about it in interviews, they've worked together multiple times. But just two actors that get along in a way that's entirely believable to me is the two of them in this movie. They never feel like a written romance. It just like, and it's funny because in this movie, Jack is effectively what we would call today, a manic pixie dream girl for mm-hmm. K- for uh, Rose, right? He's everything. He is free in all the ways that Rose isn't. And kind of this perfect manifestation of what she needs at that time in her life. Um, but it doesn't feel like it to me. It never felt, forced in any way like you just kind of felt like no, this guy he's 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 earned in many ways mostly which when when he wins passage from people who he can't even share a language with <laughs> yeah. playing poker right from the beginning you know like okay this that's who he is uh and i think another testament to that is the scene where she comes running crying uh through the length of the ship for no reason that we ever find out Mm-hmm. I, I, and I, w- I was struck by that at the mo- time. I'm like, what's she crying about? What what happened? Did the guy hit her? It looks like she was at the opera or something. Like, where is this coming from? And I still find that to be a slightly weak part of the story. But because the next scene is just so captivating where 
you can tell this guy's seen a lot. Mm-hmm. And when he says, like, I can tell you're not going to jump, you believe it because he's seen a lot and, and you've been taught that. Uh, it just it just makes those sparks fly in, in that situation. And you're like and you're immediately clear that she is going to fight it, but be attracted to him because that's the age in which she lives, but also the person that she is. And all of that ends up meaning that you kind of don't care why she was crying. You can imagine a hundred different reasons uh, given the relationship that you're you're learning with with her and and her fiance. Um, still would have would have bolstered it a little to know, but it doesn't hurt it. Yeah, and they sort of allude to it because there's the whole there's the scene with her and her mother where her mom her mm-hmm. mother is doing up her um her corset and telling her like, look, we have no money. Your father yeah, left right. us with nothing and you need mm-hmm. to marry this guy so that we don't end up in the poorhouse. And it's kind of this idea that like she Rose just feels trapped in this life and she doesn't love yeah. this guy at all. So yeah, it would be nice to kind of know what exactly incited her to yeah, that. What was the linchpin thing? But mm-hmm. you get it. It could have been anything. Yeah. Um, and what I liked is you get that scene and you you get Jack talking her off the ledge and you know kind of like you said the you know I I can tell you you're not going to jump. Then the next scene we see with them, he's she finds his sketchbook and he starts talking about all the sketches and things. And that's where you get that next layer of like, okay, here's how we know now why he would know that about her. He can read people because it's what he's been doing, sketching them and just learning about them. And I like that. That's great character work without having to have exposition. Yeah. There's um, a, there's a lot of good scenes like that in this. Uh, and, and that also gives you a good reason why she would maintain interest mm-hmm. long enough to, to get in trouble with him uh, because she, she looks at the art and realizes, well, wait, these are actually good. There's more to you than meets the eye. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like that we had before that her with her paintings, her Picassos. Um, mm-hmm. So we she has get, an appreciation again. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to tell you that. No. Nope. Yeah. They showed you that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's good filmmaking and show don't tell. Um, and so I really enjoy that. And just Leo Leonardo DiCaprio's kind of youthful, the energy that he had. And apparently he originally didn't really want to do the movie. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it was, rumor has it it was Paul Rudd that kind of convinced him to go for the movie when they were working together on Romeo I thought and you were going to tell me Paul Rudd was originally cast and that would have been a really interesting Titanic. No, but he wanted to be. <laughs> because I, uh-huh. I, apparently Paul Rudd's father is like a historian. Oh, um, wow. And okay. so he was all about the Titanic. He wanted to to go out for the role, uh-huh. didn't get it, but convinced Leo to do it is what I read. That's, that's great. That's wild. Because I, it'd be interesting to see a young Paul Rudd because this would have been 97. So what, Clueless was 95, I think. Mm-hmm. So it would have been interesting to see. It would have been very different because DiCaprio- have changed Paul Rudd's career. Oh, absolutely. We, we might have we might have seen Paul Rudd as the serious actor instead of the the more comedic roles. Yeah, wild. Ah, uh, boy. I and honestly, I don't want that because I love him in his comedic roles so much. But just imagine how many more covers of Tiger Beat he would have been on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because exactly. that that's something that people forget about uh, with DiCaprio is he was like on every magazine cover for a period of years. And I, cause I can remember going to the bookstore, going to the newsstand and 
you know, I'm over here looking at whatever magazines I am, and it's just this wall of nothing but Devin Sawa and Leonardo DiCaprio and like Jonathan Taylor Thomas <laughs> faces. Um, but DiCaprio has this like energy about him that, and I just, I just rewatched um, the Quick and the Dead recently. Oh yeah, uh, which is right a couple years before this, and there's mm-hmm. just something about him. There's like this. Then he's he's kept it and it's evolved over the years as he's gotten older, but there's just something about him where you're like you can't take your eyes off of him and you just kind of believe he is who he is in in the movie without having to do like he's not a Daniel Day Lewis, right? Yeah. He's not a chameleon. He's kind of always DiCaprio, but these different versions of I, I don't know. I don't, it's hard to describe, but I really enjoy him in this. And yeah, there's there's something about him that maybe it's the kinds of roles he takes or gets cast in, but he can inhabit them. Yes. Without, like you say, being the chameleon. Yeah. And like, I mean, by all rights, uh, on paper, I shouldn't like the character because he's kind of he's too perfect for the role. Like he's too perfect for the story mm-hmm. being told and all of that. But there's just an authenticity to him that I enjoy and he's got kind of this great little wink and he just sort of, you, you just, you believe him and you just kind of want to hang out with him. You, you want to be his poker buddy, basically. You also, I, one, one criticism I thought I would have that I didn't was that his role, Jack's role, uh, would be, would be too perfect. Uh, kind of like what you're saying, mm-hmm. where it would be like, well, why would he sacrifice himself for this woman? He barely knows. Uh, yes, ships take a long time to get places, but not that long. Right. Uh, and what they did a great job building is this is a guy who has principles uh, that he values above his own comfort. Uh, and that's a, that's established with him telling stories of where he's been, but also established with, you know, his, his ability to just, you know, like, yeah, we're, we'll get on the boat. We'll race there. We'll lie about going through health inspection. You know, we'll, 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 we'll just do what it takes. Uh, but also he has nothing to lose. Yeah. Uh, and that also is shown through mostly just the fact that he, he kind of quickly says like, yeah, my family all died. So I just hit the road. And, Yes, that's exposition, but it's not what he says that's important. It's the way he says it. It's yeah. the he he doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't tear up. Uh, and so when he sacrifices himself, uh, or attempts to sacrifice himself, even uh, before he ultimately sacrifices himself, you get the idea that he understands he's got the principles and he's got he's got the sort of outlook on life of like you know what what. What else was there to me? What else is there for me to do that would be more important? Yeah. Yep. I mean, he talks about it in his, in the dinner scene, sort of just living mm-hmm. life. Um, yeah. And then when they get Rose onto the one uh, boat and Billy Zane's character, Cal, tell, you know, says, tells the blatant lie that I've got an arrangement and he immediately jumps on it and is like, yeah, no, yeah. it's fine. I've got a boat. Go, go, go. He, because his only thought is to get her safe. And yeah. she's barely out of earshot, and he's just like, "Yeah, there's no arrangement, is there?" <laughs> like, <laughs> and he knew, but he knew it didn't matter because to him, the more important thing was taking care of Rose um, in that moment. And, and and I think it's not that he's like, "Oh, so noble, I will sacrifice myself." It's more like 
I, I'm going to get you safe first. Yep. Then I'll figure myself out. Exactly. And if That's... it doesn't work out for me, at least it worked out for you. But maybe it'll work out for both of us. Let's see what happens. Roll the dice. Yep. That was exactly how I read that whole that whole exchange is like, take care of her and then I'll figure it out for me. And that's sort of how he's lived his life and it's worked out for him so far. So why change it now in the midst of everything that's going on? Um, but yeah, I just, DiCaprio and Winslet, Kate Winslet, who uh, lobbied really hard for this role. Like she wanted this. It. She spent mm-hmm. two years basically hounding James Cameron being like, cast me, cast me. Um, her, I was surprised with how much I liked her American accent in Mm -hmm. this like it didn't sound like somebody putting on an american accent but it also like it doesn't sound like kate winslet either now you know it's it's helped by being in the 20s right because it shades it a little with that that transatlanticness uh that pervaded everything so yeah you're like well yeah yeah no that's the way people talked in the (laughs) in the newsreels um but yeah she's great billy zane is i think my note about him was billy zane is exceedingly charming and he's also really good at being a bastard yeah, he's a charming bastard. Because he's, like, there are just actors that can pull that off, right? Like, they can charm the pants off of you while at the same time they're they're ready to stab you in the back. And, like, yeah. he does that so well. And this was coming off of, I don't know if you remember The Phantom when he made that. Oh, gosh, yeah. I didn't realize. <laughs> I forgot that those are so close. Yeah, this was, like, the next year. And he's oh, doing wow. this. So when I went uh-huh. and saw it in the theater, that was, this was at a period where I was, I was laying all the groundwork for developing my, what I call now my superpower, which is like recognizing actors um, mm-hmm. from other things they've done. I did the, I did that once when the Spider-Man No Way um, or F- Spider-Man Homecoming trailer first came out. I was working and I saw the trailer and I said, holy crap, that's Bokeem Woodbine. And my coworker is like, who and how could you tell? He was on screen <laughs> for two seconds. I'm like, I don't know. But that this was Just that a, it's a gift. It's a thing that I do, and this was that time where I was like working those muscles. So it's like Billy Zane. Oh, I remember that guy. He was in the Phantom last year. Yeah, because uh, huh. I'm one of eight people that enjoyed watching that movie. It's a weirdly enjoyable comic book movie. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say so. <laughs> but this like this cast just keeps going. You get Kathy Bates and Kathy Bates so good in this. No, and I'm I'm like I want to see a a whole spinoff uh, Molly Brown with Kathy Bates. Yeah, and she's playing a a real person. Molly Brown was really a passenger. The unsinkable um, Molly Brown. Yeah, and uh, it it almost feels like they had more of her in the movie that they cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm with you. I just want like a whole movie on this Molly Brown character because Kathy Bates can do anything, and it's great. Um, yeah. But she just gets to she's having so much fun playing that role too. And I think that really, yeah, could, really shows. Well, and she's, it's important to me that she was a real character and that they called it out by, mm-hmm. in, the, you know, in the VO, like, you know, oh, the unsinkable Molly Brown. If, if you know that musical, you're immediately like, oh, right, that's a real person. Yeah. Because she's almost a deus ex machina for Jack. Yeah, kind in of. Being, in, in the one scene where he gets invited to dinner in that she uh, is new money and therefore can step in and say like i understand where you're coming from let me help you navigate these waters yeah uh to your to the best of your ability you you might not believe like oh how convenient is it that there's this new money character but then you're like actually i don't know molly brown but what i know of molly brown she likely would have done something like that so sure yeah that's a that's a good good coincidence Mm mm-hmm 
Plus, she has my favorite delivery of the trope of somebody at a dinner party that doesn't know what to do with all the utensils. Uh-huh. Just her just delivery just, from great. just start from the outside and work in. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing about Molly Brown's character is uh, they do a great job of building her up as someone who's navigating these these elitist circles in a way that kind of can poke holes in them while uh, not being you know totally. Uh, kicked out of society mm-hmm. and 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 so you're like oh she's got a heart of gold how did she survive you know why isn't she more like jack why wasn't she you know d- doing more to help more people survive and they give you that they give you that scene where she's like we need to turn back and know everybody else it, like what is she gonna do turn the boat over the you're like oh you know what They're, that that's probably all she could do at that point yeah yep it's you know it's uh an under I don't want to say underused, but just you just want more. And I love when a yeah. when a character just makes you want more. Um, yeah, whilst- I, I, going back to to Kate Winslet, um, I feel like her character is not as believable as Jack's to me uh, because of those those. There are a few you know shortcuts of like, oh, okay, I guess she's really mad because of the money. Like they didn't show me that. They didn't help me buy into that story wise, but her performance convinced me her performance convinced me that well even if i don't know why uh i can tell she, she means it i can tell it's weighing on her yeah. uh I, so so that's a brilliant piece of casting mm-hmm. um and then you know you get to some of the smaller characters like this was my introduction to bernard's uh bernard hill um because mm-hmm. i i hadn't really seen him in anything before and i forget that he's the captain in this but it's a mark of a of a really good filmmaker when they can when they can get actors of that kind of of weight to be in these smaller roles when you get Bernard Hill to be the captain who's not in it a ton but he's he's there enough uh, Victor Garber as uh Vic, as yeah. Thomas Andrews I was um, like the Doctor Who and Alias connections are <laughs> fast and thick in this Yeah uh da- anything with David Warner I don't care he's great and he's he's playing such a one note character but it's such a david warner character too yeah like it's just, practically don't act just be yourself yeah. just just be angry the whole time um yeah and he's got the greatest name spicer lovejoy <laughs> it might be my favorite one of my favorite names of all time um yeah and jonathan hyde as uh bruce ismay um who i always remember from the mummy a couple of years after this uh, oh wow! Just he's just a very small role in the Mummy, but I remember him from that. And also, like little things like Susie Amos um, was one I completely forgot. She is uh, she is old Rose's like granddaughter. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And she is in one of my all time favorite movies, The Usual Suspects. And apparently, she was dating uh, James Cameron at the time, and I think they got married after this. Oh. Wow. So on the Titanic? I don't like know. underwater. Maybe. <laughs> that would be that would be a hell of a ceremony. Um Yeah, no good. Uh but there's just there's so many of these little like faces that you see. Uh Danny Nucci is Fabrizio. Um yeah. is another one of those faces that like I never could remember his name, but I always knew him because he had he had one moment in the movie The Rock where he got to like deliver a big line where it was just him on the camera and it's it's one of those moments that you're like, it, it burns into your brain and then you see him in something else or I see him in something else anyway. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that guy. I remember him. Yeah. Um, it's also a very young Ian Grufford. Um, 
who I didn't even write. It took me forever. I saw his name pop up. Which in the one was credits. he? He was one of the, uh, he was first officer low. Um, at oh. the end, he's the one uh-huh. yelling out to everybody as they're yeah, rowing yeah, the yeah, boat. Yeah. And I've spent the entire movie like, oh, wow. where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And I, cause he's so young in this. He's probably mm-hmm. like 23, 24. Yeah. Um, if. And uh, there was one other person who. Well, Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. Yep. Um, he, uh, I, I love Bill Paxton and it's the perfect role for him. He, he's not going to work in the period stuff at all because he's just going to like, he's going to pull you out of that period, that time period. Um, but you know, he's going to be in a movie with James Cameron directing. Cause I think he's in all of them, <laughs> right. Up until, yeah, practically. until he passed away. Yeah. Um, the two others that for me always just make me chuckle is Michael Ensign is the, um, the character of, uh, he's the, the actor who, um, when the ship is going down, he shows up and he's like dressed up and he says, we're going to, we're going to face this like gentlemen and we'd like a drink and then sits in that ballroom. And he just sits down and gets all wide eyed when the, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he is, this is the tenuous connection here. He is the stuffy uh, maitre d in Ghostbusters at the hotel. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and so he's just got that, like, because I watched Ghostbusters, I wore out the Betamax tape I had Ghostbusters on growing up. Um, his gotcha. face is burned into my brain. Uh, there was one other person, though, and now I can't think of who it was. Oh, it was, um, there's that scene when uh, Kate Winslet is, um, kind of giving him the the dirt on everybody mm-hmm. uh, and she's naming all the different people one of them is um where is he he uh eric braden uh is john jacob astor and eric braden has the most credits of anybody in this cast because he was or the most uh the most work because he was on the young and the restless for like oh, okay 40 years and he's I knew done, I recognized the name for some reason. It's like 3,000 episodes of that soap opera or something insane wow. like that. Um, and that was my mom's soap opera growing up. So I saw ah, his face uh-huh. a lot. <laughs> so it's like it's just those weird connections we make when we see movies like these um, over the, over time uh, that I, I find fascinating to, to pick up on. And you see them and and then they're they're just off the screen. But it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And there's there's something to a connection with that that I kind of enjoy. So it's a really good cast up and down, though, because nobody feels out of place either. Like the people they had in the 1910s period section of the movie all feel like they, they really did a great job of having them, uh, coaching them to be in these characters well. And like you mentioned a lot of the small characters and that sort of extras in the background even. Uh, feel authentic mm-hmm. because yeah they did something in this that i had never heard of before and they had core extras they actually had like 150 extras that they kept around for a mm. majority of the shoot instead mm. of just kind of being day players i wonder how many of them got sag cards afterwards yeah because after that like, much work i mean yeah. I would have, if, but it, if it shows because especially the, the third class compartment, you, you start to recognize people mm-hmm. and you don't know their story. You don't know much about them, but you recognize them to the point that when they are running from the water later, it's not just faceless people running from the water. 
you're like, oh yeah, that was the the woman with the baby, or that was yep. the one dancing, or what you know, stuff like that. Yeah, and that's the kind of detailed attention that uh, James Cameron does. That yeah, and and it's so much more important, I think, to do something like that in this, where it's a contained film, where everything takes place on this boat. So it makes sense that you would see the same faces. It's, it's a not, ship. Sorry. <laughs> as they point out to us early yes. in the movie. That's the only reason I said that. Um, but it's like, it would be different if it took place in New York City. You can get away with yeah, just extras yeah. because there's always different people on the street. So yeah, I like right. I like that. There is a self-contained ship. You're right. Yeah. And that's Cameron is known for ridiculous attention to detail. In fact, sometimes detrimentally because he's apparently kind of hard to work for. Um, and one of the rumored stories is that there was a crew person who got so upset about stuff that he had done. Cause he, I guess would like yell at crew, yell at cast mm -hmm. um, with a megaphone, even uh, that there's a rumor that he, uh, a crew person slipped PCP into the clam chowder and wow. they ended up getting people like 50 people getting food poisoning from it and Yikes. having effects from it because this person was upset over conditions. I don't know how much truth there is to it or the reasoning behind it, but you hear these kinds of stories with like uh, broken bones for stunt people. Um, mm -hmm. Kate Winslet chipped her elbow uh, mm -hmm. from one of the scenes because this, that's the thing is about, what is it? Maybe hour 20, hour 30 into the movie. Suddenly we go from this period piece drama to disaster movie. And, the pacing picks up at that point too. Well, what, what stunned me is that I was, uh, we were already hitting the iceberg and there's the majority, we weren't even at the halfway point. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. Cause, cause it's only going to be, you know, they told us in the movie, it's like something like six hours yep. that it goes down. Um, after it hits the iceberg, I, I think they even said it in the, in the present day, section so because they they give you that lovely like here's what's gonna happen mm -hmm. uh which yeah. i loved i loved i thought that's great it's not a spoiler it's guiding you mm -hmm. so that you the tension builds more because you saw the you know 1997 era graphic representation of everything you're like oh that that smokestack's about to go down and it's that uh, those people better get out of the way they don't know what's coming yeah. stuff like that so yeah uh it it, it was it was mostly disaster movie, really. Yeah, and and done in a way where like to keep the tension going. Obviously, they got to split up uh, Jack and Rose, and right. then have a reason there. Th so they they give you this whole thing with the heart of the ocean, the the diamond, mm -hmm. and uh, Billy Zane's character has to uh, plant it on him and then accuse him of stealing it, which I thought was. If there was a forced part of any bit of the story, it's that. But they sort of set you up for like this guy just he doesn't want to lose at all. Yeah, no, so, I bought it. So it's it's definitely and and they had set up um oh uh, spicy McGee. What was what was his name again? Oh, Spicer uh, uh, Spicer Lovejoy. Yeah, Spicer Lovejoy. Uh, they 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 set him up to be the kind of person who would do exactly that sort of thing and be mm -hmm. relied upon to do it. So yeah, it's it's a little forced, but I totally bought it. Yeah, but they they managed to split them up, and then they put Jack in the room and they handcuff him, and Lovejoy just leaves him there, takes the key, and walks out, knowing the the ship is going down, but doesn't care. So now 
you get that whole scene where Rose has to go and find him. And that one, that, that like that tension just keeps going because every time we cut to a different angle, the water's just a little bit higher and mm-hmm. just a little bit higher as she's trying to get through all of that. And I love when well, that's she comes one of the in. things that hit me is how slow it sank and how yeah. long they knew they like, yeah, we're, we're, we're doomed. Uh, but we have time to think about it. <laughs> that to me is so much worse having that time because, yeah. uh, the Thomas Andrews character, as soon as the iceberg hits, he's like, we're, we're sinking. The guy that designed the ship is like, we're done. It's not, there's yeah. no way around this. It's not an if it's just how long is it going to take? Um, and yeah, I just, and I love when she comes back with the ax and he's like, all right, let's, let's give it a couple of tries. Second one completely. I was like, Hey, good enough. I trust you. Least believable part of the entire movie in my, uh, <laughs> my, my, my estimation is that she was able to break that in one go after right. proving that she had no aim moments before. No aim. And she's, uh, at this point, probably hip deep or deeper in the water. I don't know how she yeah, no generated she's any. She's probably not that strong. No. You know? So, no. Um, so being yeah. a, you know, early 20th century lady. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's your, they there's where you got to spend your out. disbelief is, uh, yeah. Cause let's face it, that, that chain doesn't break and Jack's missing at least part of an, a hand or something. Yeah. Maybe the chain breaks, maybe, but that's only if she hit the chain, which is the part I found harder. <laughs> to um, but then like, it's another thing where so much of this movie is the disaster movie and it should feel like it's too much, but it it's paced so well. And they do such a good job of cutting from Jack and Rose to we go and see Cal and Lovejoy for a little bit. We talk with, you know, and we check in on all these other characters that we got to see earlier and see what's happening to them. And like, they keep cutting back to that band playing, which did actually happen. And that's such a, like, it's such an emotional scene because they, they know why they're there. They know the ship is going down and they just keep playing. And then the one guy doesn't give up and the others are just like, all right, let's get back to it. You know, we can't leave him here alone. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was chilling. Yeah. yeah. It is very chilling. One of the most poignant parts, one of the most poignant scenes in the movie. I think, I think that one. And when the captain goes into the cabin and locks the door, and just stands yeah. there waiting for it to happen. Like he's like, I'm going down with the ship. My my, I took that as you know, my my team is trained. They will do their best. There's nothing else I can do to help. This is my role. It was his role. Plus, he put so much of the blame on himself for what happened yeah. um, because he should. Like he feels like he should have stood up to um, the Bruce Ismay character more. Yeah. That's the character yeah. that can't even look at the ship as he's leaving. Uh, on the lifeboats and mm-hmm. the whole thing with not having enough lifeboats and then they're not filling them all the way. Like just so much. Of oh that, yeah. That... And Victor Garber's character uh, saying like, I argued to put more on, but you know, <laughs> executives, oh. what are you going to do? Right. Um, and then from a filmmaking and technical standpoint, just the way all of that looks because mm-hmm. so much of it is done in a giant tank and he built now, they built the ship only on one side, but right. it was built to scale. It was and, like 90%? Yeah. Like almost almost full size? Yeah. And But they, they only built the one side of it, 
but then if you remember at the beginning of the movie, what we see as it's leaving port is the other side. Mm-hmm. They actually had to uh, flip the the ship and then um, in post. So they actually shot everything reversed, including doing all the uh, costuming and everything in reverse. Huh. So oh, wow. that was a big budget thing to have to go back through and remake everything so that it would look correct when they flipped it around to show it from so the port side. Around. Yeah. Because as I it mentioned... the effects that now. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and that was as close as they could do to it was like, well, we'll film yeah. everything this way and then flip it around. Uh Another thing that normally would get VFX is the the uh, sunset when uh, Jack mm-hmm. and uh, Rose are on the bow of the ship. Um, that's that's not an effect. That was a real sunset. They built the set so that they could capture that sunset uh, naturally. Mm-hmm. And they, I what was it like every day for the four or five days they had scheduled for it? It would be overcast at sundown, oh, and so gosh. it finally was that last one. They they managed to capture it and. Cameron, who loves his computers and loves his visual effects, for him to go that route and like be and basically say, oh, "We can't do better than a natural sunset, so let's let's make sure we can film that." I thought. I was wonder a nice if he'd touch. make the same choice now. I mean, I can't imagine he would, because uh-huh. now you can reproduce that so well. But it's sort of like. It's it's that idea of like um, he had to develop the 3D technology to make Avatar, and that's why it took him so long to make Avatar. Like, right? He couldn't he couldn't reproduce the sunset at the time, so why try? Yeah. Uh, but I think I think now he probably would, and you'd have more control too, which is the uh, the big thing that you know you don't think about with uh, with filming is like if you're filming outdoors, you're at the mercy of weather. And this movie was already drastically over budget and over uh, schedule. It was so beyond schedule. The, um, what was it? Cameron had to agree to forfeit his salary and his front end of the movie uh, in order to to get it made. Because I love the quote. I think it was, um, he was walking in the halls of fox and one of the executives was coming the other way and he's like yeah i'm probably like your least favorite person right now and the executive's like look if your movie makes money it's fine <laughs> i'm an executive all i care about is the profit and loss the p and l because fox put something like 120 million into this and yeah because they was... had the international is that mm-hmm. right and yeah paramount had the domestic yeah yep um but just to 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 get it at all. And then on top of that, uh, one of the most well-known parts of this movie is the song. My heart will go on, which Cameron didn't even want to have initially. Um, why was that? He didn't want a song playing over the end credits. He felt that that would be, that would feel like selling out and it would feel, uh, like a disservice to the memory of the, Actual. of the of the events and the yeah. movie itself so he didn't mm-hmm. want that and what happened was James Horner gets hired to do the music which in and of itself is kind of amazing given that Horner and Cameron uh, butted heads a lot on aliens mm-hmm. Horner gets uh, hired is working on this and he in kind of in secret works on the song and writes it and Celine Dion apparently also didn't want to do the song and had to be convinced by her husband to come in 
And I don't know how true this is, but I did see where she came in, did it in one take, and that's what they used. So effectively, wow. it's the demo uh, of uh -huh. the song, which, given her career, I could buy it because she's just that good. But, she's just good enough, yeah. yeah. And sometimes first is her best. Yeah, that's true. But uh, But Horner did all this and then kind of at the last minute sort of showed James Cameron, and Cameron was like, yeah, okay, that song's good. Let's go with it. And so they put it in there. I don't know. Like <laughs> Celine Dion's not bad. I guess we'll get you. <laughs> and I think this movie still would have done really well, but that song, you could not get away from that song in 1997, 1998. Like it was impossible to go anywhere and not hear that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder how well, because this was the first movie to make over a billion dollars at the box office. Um, and uh, I just wonder how well it would have done without that song to kind of help market it in a way too. And sort of that happy accident of like, well, I don't want to have a song in the movie. Well, we, we wrote one anyway. What do you think? He's like, all right, fine. <laughs> like this, I'm, I'm just imagining Cameron begrudgingly like, sure, whatever, put the song in there. Well, and, and it, it's, and that song immediately is associated with Titanic. Every mm -hmm. time you hear it, whether you, if you've seen the movie or not, you're like, Oh, the, the Titanic song, yep. right? Um, it's you, funny. We uh, we were in Ireland and we took a Game of Thrones tour, not realizing that the tour company was packaging a Titanic tour with the Game of Thrones tour. Oh, interesting. So uh, there was a there was a, a couple of stops along the way that were that were like kind of a, a just general touristy stops, not not particular to anything. Mm -hmm. And then you get to Belfast and they, they stopped at the Titanic museum huh. and that song is blaring out, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in front of the museum and all the Titanic people got off and then you, they went across the road to the Game of Thrones museum, which is set up at the set where they had they had shot Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. and you know the theme to Game of Thrones is <laughs> is, is blaring. Uh, but I, I I just I remember thinking like, oh, I, I'd be really interested to see that Titanic museum. But is it a museum of the movie or the actual boat or both? I couldn't tell. Uh, I mean, because they were playing the song. So yeah, I know that's where it was built. So I think it is. I'd have to I'd have to research that a little bit more because I'd hope that it's more about just the actual ship, but they incorporate. I'm sure it's it's based on the shipbuilding, but I imagine they used as much of tied as much of the movie into it as they could just to, you know. I mean that'll that'll get people in the door. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So the the big question uh, is: Was there room on the door for Jack? Right, because that's the huge debate. That was the, the first thing uh, Eileen said when when I sat down <laughs> to watch the movie. Uh, she's like, "Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think about the door." And then uh, she came back, like I said, like towards the end of the movie, mm -hmm. and she she's like, "You know, watch it." As I look at, it, I'm like, "There's totally room on that door." Like, there, it, it it he's hanging on the edge, so I don't think his weight matters. They could have both sat on the door. So what I did in my head is said. In reality, the door was smaller, but for filming, they had to make it bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, the way the way the friend's apartment was way bigger than any 
person in their 20s could have afforded in Manhattan in the 1990s. Right. You know, but they made it bigger to make it easier to shoot. The door was bigger, so it was easier to shoot. Okay, I'll go with that. I mean, that's as good as yeah. any, because there is the one moment what where he think? tries he, to climb he, on. He, yeah. Because when he tries to climb on, the door starts to like flip over and and he should have just moved over a little more and counterweighted it would have been fine i think the door could have held them both as it's depicted but i'm going to go with your theory in that it just looks bigger because it films yeah the 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 real story of jack (laughs) and rose uh does not have that big of a door that's why you had to hang off the. there you go exactly that um there was an alternate ending for this I didn't know that. Yeah. It has to, it takes place in the present day um, because we get the scene with um, Gloria Stewart's old Rose uh, walking. By the way, which really a performance. I totally bought that. Yeah. She's amazing. She deserved that nomination she got for best supporting actress that year because she was fantastic. Um, So her scene at the end where she walks out, uh, gets up on the railing and, and drops the diamond into the ocean the alternate version of it is she gets all the way out there and then like the crew of the ship uh, catch her and are trying to convince her not to do it and not to throw the diamond away. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Bill Paxton's character is like, you know, because obviously that's what he's been searching for is that that diamond. Right. Um, she she lets him hold the diamond for a minute and it's like it's enough for him to realize that it's not important. And then she throws it into the water anyway. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that alternate ending at all. I don't, it, it feels, oh, really? and I think because end of the day, it feels better to have Rose be the only one that knows that the diamond isn't at the bottom of the ocean already. Right. And she's kept it all this time and it's her, She's finally gotten to to tell the story of Jack and sort of tell the story of what changed her life and let her become the woman that she is and her being able to like let go of that on her own with no one else around and no one to yeah, see yeah. it. To just have that moment to herself, I feel like is a lot more I, powerful the way that they did it. I think I, I think I agree with you that the way they did it is better than the alternate ending. I don't hate the alternate ending because it's just a little too convoluted. Mm-hmm. I, what I sort of like about it is the idea that that uh, Bill Paxton's character understands the scenario enough, and 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 so you actually round out his story a little more. But it's not necessary to round out his story more. And I, I and I like her just slipping out and dropping it. The only thing I don't understand is why she why she didn't sell it. That's a great question. It was a symbol of her oppression. Yeah. It was the gift from the person she hated uh, and the person who, who, in many ways, is responsible for the death of Jack. Uh, maybe not directly, but, you know, it certainly delayed things a lot. I, so so I, I was a little curious, like, well, why did she hold it? She's not giving it back to Jack. Jack didn't want it. Um, it yeah. wasn't Jack's. I, so, the only thing I can think I like, of... I liked your expression of like, it's her letting, finally letting go of the last of her past. And and I think, I mean, you could maybe co- kind of work the scenario that she kept it all these years because it was the reminder of 
sort of because of that diamond and because of that oppression that she had from Cal is why she and how she met Jack in they the like first drove place. Her. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and it was that one last sort of tangible thing she could hang on to to remember him by. Sure. Um, and then finally no, that, that's go a good that, explanation. But. I I like that. It it was sort of a uh, a reminder of what she was avoiding and also, you know, how he Jack saw it differently than Cal did. Cal yeah. saw it as a as a bribe, basically, mm-hmm. or as Jack saw it as as something beautiful that went along with her own beauty. So yeah, yeah, yeah all right, yeah, because in the end of the you know in the end Jack saw her mm-hmm. for who she is as a person, and Cal saw her as a trophy to be won. Yeah, um, and keep on his yeah. She's and, a playing piece to him. Yeah, totally. Um. I almost, because uh, one of the things that that always makes me laugh about this movie is how many times the names Jack and Rose are spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, because normally in normal conversations with people, you don't say the other person's name every sentence. Um, and Travis, so I, that's right. <laughs> I, I actually, Tom, went through... <laughs> And tried to capture audio of every time they said Jack and Rose, and I was going to just see how long that supercut would be. Yeah. Ten minutes into after they met, I had already captured Jack 15 times and Rose like eight, and I gave up. I'm like, I can't keep yeah. up. Yeah. There's just too There's much. Too much. <laughs> but I have a feeling that supercut has got to be like a solid five minutes of just Jack, Rose, Rose, Jack. If you do that with video, you got yourself a YouTube hit. If <laughs> somebody hasn't done it already. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that, that was when I, when I was like really paying attention, listening to the, to the movie, that was another thing that I noticed was how good the sound design was to this too. Yeah. Throughout all, because a good disaster movie needs that. Anything that's this special effects heavy and this practical special effects heavy, because there's so much of that with these big sets um, and the sound is just amazing, like fantastic. Uh, and played well on my, I have a very simple 5.1, uh, setup, you know, and I was, I was hearing, I, th- I thought there was a leak in the house there. You know, <laughs> I heard the water dripping behind me. Yeah. All of that. The, the eerie quiet right before the iceberg hits. Yeah. And the way that they just like all that negative space, uh, tonally, and they just get rid of everything. And then you get that sound and, I think they said that the the way the iceberg hit was um, how it happened to the actual Titanic, including the length of time that it ran along the side of it. It's like 30 seconds of that iceberg just scraping wow. along the side of the ship. Um, and, so it, and and the the obliviousness of people to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're so used to air travel now. If something happens to that airplane, every single person on an airplane knows what's happening to that airplane. Uh, the idea that someone could be in their cabin and go. Did you feel that there? It seems like there was a little shudder, and it's like, no, that's the iceberg that's about to sink the <laughs> Titanic. That's wild. I feel like that's like the you know you've uh, well, it might be for you being in uh, the L.A. area when a a mini quake hits, and you're just like, oh, it's a, all right, earthquake, go back to sleep. Yeah. You well, and of, those those last you know four five seconds you know tops usually yeah. they don't they they seem longer than they are if if one were to last 30 seconds it would it would feel like it was going on forever so yeah it's just from from a technical standpoint this movie uh deserves uh, all the awards and it looks good 25 years later too i agree 
Yeah. It did um, not look like a 97, did not look like it was made in 97. No. And there's a good amount of computer uh, imagery in this um, too, mm -hmm. but they were doing this and this is the thing. And I say this all the time when people want to decry CGI and say, well, practical is always better. Practical ages better. I think most of the time yeah. when it's well done, but the best use of stuff is using uh, the power and, and ease of computers to extend practical effects beyond where they are or to make, to integrate them easier to, um, to augment them. So to yeah. Speak. yeah. And so this was Cameron doing this in 97 when uh, a le I, th I feel like a, a filmmaker that's not so insanely uh, beholden to like every detail or is going to over CG a lot of this and water especially is expensive to film, but it's hard to reproduce digitally. Mm -hmm. It never looks yeah. quite right. And so, you know, they, you can see where all the money went uh, in this movie because it doesn't look cheap at all. And to look this good 25 years later, I do, and, and I don't know if the version that I watched had this or not, but they, they re-released the movie in 2012 uh, in 3D. Yeah. And one of the things that they did on, on top of the 3D conversion was um, they fixed some of the night sky because uh. apparently Neil deGrasse Tyson got a hold of James Cameron and was like, hey, by the way, your sky is wrong. That's not <laughs> what the sky would have looked like over the Atlantic at that point. And so they redid it for that re-release. What was? Do you know what was wrong about it? It was just, just the wrong sky. Like they just had like the, uh, the stars were in the wrong place. Or? Yeah, the, according ah. he basically said none of the stars that you showed were what the stars would have been over the Atlantic during that At period that of time. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so they went back, and I believe that Cameron would go back and fix that because that guy is crazy, mm -hmm. and he would yeah. he would do that, but. Um, they spent something like $80 million doing that 3D conversion for this movie. Yeah. Uh, well, and that was, what, 2012 or so when they yeah. put that out? And now it's going back into the theaters for the 25th anniversary? Yeah. So this is like the movie they, that keeps making money. They're not money. done making money off of it, so it was, <laughs> no. worth, it was worth the investment. Yeah, and it, talk about a big swing, though, because if this movie doesn't, blow up the way that it does we don't we're not talking about james cameron his career is done. no you're, you're it's water world yeah yeah exactly nobody <laughs> talks about kevin uh kevin reynolds at all no um but it's i think people that don't see this movie don't you don't un, you, it's hard to appreciate what the movie is if you just go by kind of the well it's just a love story that's on the boat that yeah. sinks um because there's more to it than that it's a, it's a, it's a really compelling story. The characters are are probably the most fleshed out of some of any of the characters in a James Cameron movie. Um, I will say, like Aliens had decent characterization, but he that's a sequel. He's building off of what the character that was already there. For these to be completely new characters, they're so well fleshed out in this. Um, yeah. I I like that quite a bit. And it and it's constructed interestingly, like like you said, it's three. It's a it's a documentary. It's a, it's a disaster movie. It's a love story. It's a period piece. It's multiple things, but it's it's tightly constructed. So you know you have that shot of them pulling the car onto the Titanic at the beginning. 
which could have served just on its own uh, as a as a emblem of like this is the kind of wealth that was going on here or uh this is the kind of things that were lost beyond just human life when it went down yeah. uh, it would have worked that would have been fine you you wouldn't you have needed to ever reference that car again uh but i love that they did when they're yeah. running through the hold and it, you know it, it gives them a, a a place to get a little privacy yeah yeah there's there's nothing wasted in the movie and i no no i very not. much appreciate that Especially when you have stuff like, um, with all the disaster stuff, it's sets that are going to get just utterly decimated and destroyed. You've got one shot at those, and they put so much effort into making those sets look good that they're just going to blow up with a ton of water. They, and, I want, And making them fit the underwater scenes of the wrecked Titanic. Yes. The only thing different was, I believe, they had to rescale... Because he brought in... Um, titanic historians to like scrutinize what they did for the sets but they had to rescale like the staircase a little bit because that grand staircase just for the difference in height of people from 1912 to 1997 (laughs) interesting they had to just change the tweak the scaling just a little bit on that but uh, just the attention to detail and and everything that they did i just i really uh it, it makes for a very enjoyable movie uh to watch and that's tough to do with a three hour period piece. Um, that's not, it's not an easy sell for people, but I think also because it switches gears at the hour 34, if you want to take a break, that's not a bad spot to about halfway through. Um, and then you can come back and kind of be ready for the, uh, the nonstop thrill ride. That is. Yeah. The part two. <laughs> so Yeah. Are they going to make a sequel? <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, they've made a couple sequels to titanic uh not directly to this movie but there was actually a movie that came out called titanic 2 oh really um yeah i have no idea what it was what it was about i kind of avoided that but there was a titanic 2 about another ship that spoiler alert also hit an iceberg i would think they would do carpathian and it's the story of of rose on the rest of the voyage home after they got saved no that would be interesting i like that i would i would be interested in that um I did. Uh, I like to find weird stuff to capture audio-wise. And tell me, I have to play this for you because when I was watching it this time, I had to stop and rewind this and listen a few times. This is when the ship is starting to go down and somebody falls. And I think what the sound is is them hitting something. But this sounds to me, well, I'm going to play it and then I want to see if you if you hear what I okay. hear. I'll play it one more time. You can kind of hear what sounds like something bouncing off of something else, but I hear Chewbacca. Is it the guy? Is the guy hitting the the propeller? It might be, but I hear Chewbacca. Whoa! And now I can't unhear Chewbacca. Like I, every time I watch it, it's like hearing a Wilhelm scream, and then you never yes, unhear. Yes. So that's amazing. I, I feel like Chewie was on there somewhere. Um, uh, see, it's a crossover movie. <laughs> And one more shout out to Gloria Stewart just for for playing old Rose and how how like to have that line of boy that yeah that was me wasn't I a dish mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, the uh, what was the other the other one was um, her saying something about it was like the most erotic moment of my life and here's her <laughs> granddaughter just like turning every shade of red possible and I just love that because we all know that that old grandma uh, who's like that. oh yeah yeah. 
And, uh, or, or, or right up there is the lie where she's like, oh, you want to know, did we do it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was so good. This, I'm, I, I forgot how enjoyable this movie was. I hadn't watched it in a few years. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I'm glad you finally got to see it. Um, yeah. And yeah. You had a good too. time with it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure. I was like, why did I pick a three hour movie? <laughs> Uh, but I'm glad I did. Uh, it did not feel like three hours. And, and now I can say I've seen Titanic and, and I have a very positive opinion of it. There you go. And now, uh, now nobody can say you, uh, can take that away from you either, which is, which is great. And it, three hour movies are always a tough sell, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, even at two and a half hours, it can be, I've seen somewhere. And what I like is a good, a good film. It doesn't matter how long it is. The Green Mile is kind of my measuring stick for three-hour movies. I saw that in a theater, and I came out, and I was like, that was three hours? I couldn't believe it because it's so well-paced. And that's what it comes down to is pacing. When you get a pet beyond an hour and a half, you've got to have good pacing or things are just going to drag. And that's why I think so many people don't like movies past an hour and a half as they see a bad one that's two hours or two hours and ten minutes and – you just you're you're looking at your watch. You're waiting, trying to find time to for it to be done. And- you're you're already setting so much time aside, especially when you consider it, you know getting there, parking, getting yep. out, you know all of that sort of thing. Uh, that and there's so many movies that don't have the best pacing. That yeah, it's you start to shy away from the longer movies. Yeah, and I I know this one's helped by just going to you know switching gears and going to that disaster movie in the second half because now you're just ratcheting tension all the time. Yeah, and, and you're I, at a new movie, so to speak. Yeah, and look, James Cameron just knows how to make a compelling thing to watch. He's been doing it. Since now I know he Titanic. can do pacing. Yeah. Uh, how how's the pacing compare with uh, Avatar: The Way of Water? Because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> There's no comparison. <laughs> Fair. Avatar: The Way of a Way of Water may not be technically a longer movie than Titanic. I haven't actually. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the running time is, uh, but it's a much longer movie than Titanic. That's good to know because I haven't seen it yet, and uh, I yeah. want to prepare Take myself accordingly. Okay. Uh, comfy, you know, something comfy to sit on. Yeah. It has, it has really good parts. Uh, the, there are parts where I totally forgot that I had been sitting there so long, even later in the movie that, that sweep you up. So it's not bad. It's just feels long. That's kind of how I felt about the first avatar too, um, was it had moments, it had good parts to it, but it just at times felt long. It felt like we're, mm-hmm. we're on this moment for a little longer than we need to be. And, and it was pretty. That's what I, I just enjoyed looking at it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Way of Water, also very pretty, a very pretty movie. But because I had already seen Avatar, I'm like, it's it's not, you know, I've, I'm already set up for it. Like, okay, the technology improved. It's a little prettier, but it, it's not such a like, oh, it blew me away what he did as it, as it was in the first one. I yeah, think. it's not the new thing you haven't seen before. Yeah, You've seen it, yeah, exactly. and it's the Thor Love and Thunder problem of like, Thor Love and Thunder in a vacuum isn't bad, but you've already seen Ragnarok and yeah. it's treading a lot of the same ground. So right. that's my it's theory. It's an incremental movie. improvement. Yes. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being here. This was a ton of fun. I'm really glad you got to see this new movie and it was a it was a great conversation. Um 
And uh, you, uh, now I listen to Daily Tech News Show a lot, but you have a, a couple other projects that you work on. Um, yeah, uh, no, oh, thanks for having me. This, this, this was super fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I enjoyed watching the movie in preparation for it too. It was great excellent. talking to you. Uh, if folks are into movies, uh, which if you're listening to this, I assume you might be, uh, we talk about TV and movies on cord killers, uh, all the time. Cordkillers.com. Uh, it's me and Brian Brushwood talking about the things we watch and how we're able to watch them. So it's, it's following the streaming revolution as it goes along. Uh, and so, so talking about the services and the technology that you use to watch things, uh, but also the things we watch and what are, what are some of the cool things to watch. And one of the cool things that has happened in the course of the show is there have become so many more streaming services uh, that we've gone from uh, like, hey, there's a show on a streaming service to, oh, here's a few shows you might want to check out uh, <laughs> to help you navigate those, those waters. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's, it's been interesting watching how that show has evolved, uh, as the streaming, streaming services have evolved as well. So very, very cool. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. This was a ton of fun. Uh, definitely welcome back anytime. If you have another movie, um, that you want to come on back and talk about, uh, anytime. A shorter movie possibly. Uh, We can do something shorter than three hours. Uh, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, and uh, so I record this show typically Sunday nights, um, but it comes out as a podcast uh, during the week, uh, Wednesday. So this will go up a little bit later tonight. Um, and I record it live, stream it at uh, twitch.tv slash Travis if you want to come hang out and be uh, like Voldera or 9 of 12 in the chat. Um, and the show comes out weekly. I've uh, 205 episodes in. Uh, I haven't missed a week in those 205 episodes. I'm kind of crazy Man, that way. I was reading your uh, newsletter this past week where you had done something like 10 or 12 podcasts you had recorded in a week. 13 or 14, yeah. And I was like, good, somebody who's doing more shows in a week than I am. Because I always feel (laughs) crazy. People, friends of mine will ask me like, well, what what stuff are you working on? I'm like, I've got three weekly shows that I do plus a bi-weekly show plus I just said yes to being a guest on four different shows in like two weeks. Yeah. And I feel like I'm crazy, so it's good to see somebody out there doing even more. Um. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm not sure if it, if I uh, if that's a good idea for either of us. But Probably yeah, not. When you enjoy doing it, when you enjoy doing it, why well, like you can't stop? Yeah, that's what it is. As long as I keep uh, having fun, I'll keep doing it. Um, totally. And uh, if you enjoy this show and you want to um, you want to uh, back, uh, I do have a Patreon for the show. Patreon.com/slash/wyhs. Uh, and you can also go to tvstravis.com where you can find this show, other shows that I work on. Um, I've got some blog posts coming soon. I'm working, I'm in the very, very early stages of a YouTube series I want to start doing, diving into film franchises and kind of oh, nice. looking, taking a, an entire franchise at a time, um, which the more I think about, the scarier it gets. But we'll see what goes on with that. So tvstravis.com is the place to find that. Uh, and that's where you can find this show as well. So. Once again, Tom, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I had a great time, and I'm glad to hear that you did as well. Thanks, man. And uh, until next time, uh, next week I am watching Ray Liotta and No Escape. So that'll be fun. Come on back next week for Wait Yet. Yeah,